invite you to take a Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Uh, just for your information, next uh, Sunday morning, uh, Dr. Palmer Robertson, who was a former professor uh, here in the United States in one of our seminaries, and an author that many of you have read, Christ of the Covenants, he will be here to preach. He is now on the faculty at the African Bible College. So next Sunday morning, Dr. Robertson. So if you want a good sermon with some theological depth to it, next Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I'll read this in a moment, and I want to read a section of the psalm and then then preach about that section at a time. So let me make a few comments before we actually come to Psalm 139. Each year, thousands of churches, tens of thousands of churches across the United States, and especially in January, uh, observe a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It marks, the reason it's in January is to mark the date that the 1973 Roe v. Wade and the Doe v. Bolton Supreme Court decisions uh, legalizing abortion at any stage of pregnancy. And since those rulings took effect, approximately 4,400 lives are lost daily to abortion in the United States. And in Georgia, there are about 100 documented abortions each day. Many believe, and history confirms, that disrespect for life escalates. And then, over time, the threat will not only be to the unborn, but to the elderly and to the disabled and to the infirmed as well. Now, regardless of what you may hear today or in these days, the Christian church has always and everywhere opposed abortion. The early church distinguished itself from the Roman world in its opposition to the then widespread legal practice of abortion as well as the practice of the killing of the infants and infanticide. Documents from as early as the second century strictly forbid abortion, saying, Thou shalt not destroy thy conceptions before they are brought forth. You shall not slay a child by abortion. And the Jewish teachers of the Alexandrian and the Palestinian schools, they condemned abortion as contrary to the law of God. The Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin strongly opposed abortion. Calvin called it an abomination to kill a fetus in the womb who has not yet been brought into the light. In 1869, here in America, the Presbyterian Church declared, we regard the destruction by parents of their offspring before birth as a crime against God and against nature. Even among more modern, higher critical scholars like Karl Barth, he wrote, he who destroys germinating life kills a man. Diedrich Bonhoeffer called the destruction of developing life murder. And George H. Williams, the professor of church history at Harvard, the Harvard Divinity School, summarizes the church's historic position this way. He writes, 2,000 years of Jewish Christian history maintain that the fetus is a person with the right to life. Now, it's really only been over the past 40 years that this position has begun to be challenged by those who claim to be Christians. So why have Christians through the ages 
opposed abortion and infanticide? Why have they started hospitals to care for the defenseless and the disabled and the elderly? Why are Christians the ones who have started crisis pregnancy centers and adoption agencies like we heard about this morning? And that question may have several answers, many answers, but certainly one of those is found in some of the message of Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, King David asks four key questions. He says, does God know me? Is God close to me? Did God make me? And does God protect me? So let's look at those together as we do a, a brief survey of this entire psalm, at least some of the main thoughts. Verses 1 to 6 tell us that God knows you and me like no one else knows us. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. These opening verses tell us that God knows everything. The big theological word for that is he is omniscient. Omni meaning all. Science has to do with knowledge. So he has all knowledge. God has all knowingness. There's absolutely nothing he does not know. Now, every day you and I live our lives dependent upon the knowledge of other people because our knowledge is limited. And so you have to depend on the knowledge of others. Every time you take a prescription pill, you're acting on the knowledge of the pharmacist or the prescribing physician or the company that produced it. When you travel on an airplane, you are depending on the knowledge of the pilot and the crew and the mechanics and so forth. When you go to school, you are dependent on the knowledge of others. We need the knowledge that other people have because we have such limited knowledge. But David says God searches him in verse 1 and he knows everything. The word there for search, the term is to dig to dig into and to dig through. And as God digs, he examines. And David says, God does this when I sit down, it says in verse 2, and when I rise up. The two phases of life, our most common and casual moments, are completely familiar to the Lord. Verse 2 says, he perceives your thoughts. We cannot understand or perceive other people's thoughts. You may say to someone, I know what you're thinking based on their facial expression, or maybe you've been through the same experience, but you really don't. Often we don't even know what we're thinking ourselves. We can only imagine someone's thoughts as we hear their words, and they tell us. But we cannot see what happens in their mind, but God does. God knows your thoughts before you think them. Your dreams and your moods and your hopes and your plans, whether you're happy, frustrated, angry, disappointed, content, patient, Fearful, calm, he knows it all. And so he sees everything. He knows what you will be thinking five minutes from now, five months from now, five years from now. He knows it right now. Now, I know some people, when we talk like this, they think God's too busy. There are far more bigger problems in the world than my little choices. If this is true, 
then he knows what you will order for lunch tomorrow. He knows whether you will get the potato or the french fries or the broccoli or what you will have to drink. God knows it all. And you say, well, that's trivializing it. It's not trivializing it. He knows every detail. He knows which way you will button your shirt, whether from the top down or the bottom up tomorrow, and which shirt you'll wear. Verse 3 says, you search out my path. That's the idea of sifting. As a child, remember in sandboxes, the sifting was fun. You'd take a sifter and you'd do this and you'd look for, is it a rock? Is it a diamond? Oh, it's a Coke, Coke bottle top. God sifts you. He looks and he examines everything about you. Your thoughts, your actions, it's all intimately known. Now, not every one of us likes the idea of being known intimately. Personal knowledge can be dangerous. It's a liability, right? What if that person decides, that knows me so well, decides to capitalize on my weaknesses or tell other people or spread secret things around? And so probably many of us here learn at a rather early age to play our cards close, to let someone in just so far. But it's like, you know, you get further than that and I'm not very comfortable with what you may do with that knowledge or what you may think. But here, rather than being threatened, David responds with, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, in verse 6. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. So this exhaustive knowledge that God has of you and me and David, he's overwhelmed with it. He's not threatened by it. He's not afraid of it. He doesn't flee from it. He exalts in it. Charles Spurgeon preached and wrote about the Psalms. And those notes and sermons are compiled into three volumes today, and it's called The Treasury of David. Many of you probably have a copy, probably a condensed and revised copy, down to one volume of The Treasury of David. Here's what he said, or one of the things he said about this idea of such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He says, we are not surprised that the most glorious God should in his knowledge be high above all the knowledge in which we can attain. It must of necessity be so. Since we are such poor, limited beings, and when we stand on our tiptoes, he says, we cannot reach to the lowest step of the throne of the eternal. So be amazed at that. Be amazed. Be in awe at God's knowledge of you. He goes on. In verses 7 and following, it talks about how near God is to us. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Can you find any place that will remove you from God? No. In fact, it's emphatic here, verse 8, when he says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Another way to state it, if I go up to heaven, thou. That's how they, they didn't use King James, but it was that emphasis. If I go up to heaven, you, meaning you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. God is present. You cannot escape his reach wherever you go. His right hand will hold you fast. And he's never absent. We may think, well, if I, if I find a place that's dark enough, if I get to the bottom of a cave and nobody can see me, surely he can't see me there. No, he sees everything. I was reading this week about the military technology behind night viewing. <laughs> You're thinking, don't you have anything better to do? 
<laughs> Our military has many types of devices to view and have sight in darkness. There, there are basically three types. One is a type called thermal imagers. Thermal imagers show up heat sources at considerable range. And so, you know, they kind of see through the fog and the smoke and can see a human body because of the heat being given off. The most accurate is today, and the newest is called active infrared technology. But then there are passive night vision goggles, where some of you that have those binoculars and, and take them out at night, where it accentuates any light source, becomes real bright, and so you can see things with the passive night vision goggles. God doesn't need any of those. We cannot hide from him in the darkness. If you try to hide from him because of sin or guilt, he is there. You cannot do that. You cannot find it possible to hide from him. Well, how does God know you so intimately, and why is he so near to you? And that comes next, and that's because he made you. He made every one of us sitting here today. Look at verses 13 and following. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He transports us into the womb and a place of intimacy and, and darkness and says, You knitted me together there. Uh, he formed you there like no other. He knit you together like a, a fine tapestry. And he was intimately involved in the placing of all your organs and your various parts of your body. And so a paraphrase of verse 13 might be, For God alone and none other originated all my vital organs. You knitted my inner being together in the womb of my mother. We know from fetal development that on the 21st day after you were conceived, when you were 21 days old, so to speak, the foundation had been created for your brain, for your spinal cord, and your entire nervous system. Your heart began to beat also at that time. After just one month, your internal skeleton was begun to form, as well as your nose and your eyes and your ears. And within five weeks of conception, your eyes, your nostrils, your ears, your mouth, your lips, and your tongue, they were visible, and your teeth had begun to form. All your muscle blocks were present and movement had begun. By the sixth week, your adrenal gland and your thyroid were functioning. Your fingerprints, the fingerprints that you have right now, they were in place by the eighth week. They will last a lifetime. At three months, all of your organ systems were present and you were this size. You were six size, this size at 12 weeks. And so... To the degree of accuracy that this is, there are eyes, nose, ears, hands, arms, feet, back, hips. Nothing more from that point on was formed new. You slept, you woke up, you tasted, you heard sounds, you just continued to grow until birth. And during the fourth month of your life, you were six inches long and you began to suck your thumb. Your mom began to feel you move. And then over those fifth and sixth months, you grew to be about 12 inches. Is it in length or in height? Correct me afterwards. You were 12 inches long. Often you would sleep when your mother was her busiest. Loud noises outside the womb would trigger a strong reaction from you. 
During the last three months of your mother's pregnancy, you grew to be about 20 inches long and you weighed about seven and a half pounds. Now we moderns know about the specifics of fetal development, but the psalmist knew who was controlling the whole purpose, and that was God. In verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He says, isn't this wonderful? You Every one of you here are a species of wonder. Who can argue that the human body is a phenomenal combination of beauty and coordination and grace and balance on the outside, but even more remarkable is what's on the inside that God put together. When our son Stephen was just a few weeks or months old, we were and he severely disabled, we were having all sorts of tests done up at Scottish Rite in Atlanta. I remember when Barbara and I sat down with a neurologist named Dr. Janice, a woman who was highly regarded in her field. And she had done, she was looking at uh, an MRI of his brain and so forth, and, and she was explaining to us how the brain was formed. And, and pardon me, those of you that really know this stuff, but the way I remember her explaining it was that the the brain forms almost like, it starts almost like you'd think of a storm, and it circles out, and it grows out like that. And she looked at both of us. I have no idea what her religious convictions were or not, if she had any. And she said, it is a miracle that any of us are normal, given how complex the creation of the brain is, the formation of the brain. Well, David saw this, and he exalted, he glorified in that. In fact, verse 15 says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And so God has crafted you. You are not some one-dimensional, bland piece of art, but you are an intricately crafted work of sculpture by the very hand of God. Now, do you see why this passage of Scripture has and will continue to be at the forefront of those who oppose the taking of innocent human life, and proposing of abortion. But I want to speak specifically to you. In God's eyes, you are a masterpiece of creation. You may look in the mirror and not think that, but you are. And that includes the child with Down syndrome, and it includes the senior who's suffering from Alzheimer's, it includes the unwed mother and the baby growing inside of her. And so when you look in the mirror... If you hate what you see, you're really, you're really hating your creator because you're saying, this is your fault. You made me, and you're to blame. But God doesn't see you that way. And so if you look in the mirror and think, boy, I wish I had blue eyes rather than brown, or I wish I was this height, or, or I wish I was taller, I wish I was shorter, or I wish I was faster, or I wish I was something that you're not... Um, God made you. He made you, uh, created you, and you are a masterpiece. Our response to this should be reverence, and it should be confidence. Let me move on. Now, verses 19 and following says God can change you like no other. In verse 19, there's a radical, abrupt change. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. You say, oh, wait a minute. What's that got to do with the value of human life? Oh, men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. When Michael and I were uh, going planning the worship service today, we looked at that part of the, the metrical psalm and said, do we leave that in or take it out? Because these are not the kind of things you find in responsive readings in our hymn books. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Then the pastor, uh, do I not hate those who hate you and kill those who, you know. We typically don't use the imprecatory psalms, is what they're called, in our responsive readings. And it's to our, it's to our lack of credit. What does this mean? The tone changes from gratitude to judgment and even a curse. The writer appeals to God to intervene and remove his enemies, and the character of those enemies is noted. It's they are bloodthirsty, they are malicious, and they are blasphemous, blaspheming against God. As you and I get to know God, it brings a new and keen awareness of evil, not only around us, but also in our own hearts. And not everyone who delights in the knowledge of God, some oppose him and his gracious purposes. And so as the psalmist sees life from God's perspective, he doesn't say, God, enable me to carry out vengeance. He says, God, carry out your justice, carry out your vengeance in the world. But look where he wants him to start. And that's in the last two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any gracious way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So as we see God, as we learn about God, we see ourselves as we really are and the need for God's grace. We recognize that, yes, it is God who has made me and I long to know my creator, but I can't do that by my own desire or by my own works. But I need his grace and his mercy. And, of course, that's where Jesus comes into the picture. Because God saw that these people, us, that he has made in his image, they'd rebelled against him, and they died spiritually. And God said the punishment for that must be death. And so he promised from the early chapters of the Bible that he would send one, a redeemer, a warrior king, who would be a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, a substitute. So when Christ came, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned against God. He never broke God's laws. And when he died, he allowed himself to be crucified. And on that cross, he was crucified as a substitute. He was put to death as a substitute for the sins of others. God took my sin. He put them on Jesus on the cross, and he punished him in my place. Three days later, he rose from the dead. The last command he gave to his disciples was to go and make disciples of all nations. And so you and I are here today, and we have to respond to that. Do you believe in this God who has made you? You believe he had a hand in your creation, that he knows everything about you, that you cannot hide from him anywhere, any place, under any condition. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Put your trust in him and what Jesus did. And as we receive him, as we put our trust in what Jesus did and who he was, then we grow more and more into understanding who we are, what God plans for us. We have the promise of eternal life. We're adopted into his family. As we talked about adoption today, we become his sons and his daughters. And we will spend eternity as the forever family of God. That's good news. I don't know about you, but that's good news. Y'all need some good news? That's the best news anybody could hear. Jesus paid it all. Ask him to make you the person he wants you to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, we... 
It's hard to pray when we know that you know the very things on our minds right now. You know the words that, that I'm going to speak now before I speak them as I lead us in prayer. We thank you for your creation of us. We thank you for ruling over our lives. Forgive us when we ignore you. Forgive us for thinking we can uh, live life without you and it be right. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves and what we can accomplish rather than what Jesus did. And Father, if there's someone here today that really needs to know that they belong to you, that their life is significant, uh, that they are not garbage, that they are not uh, the whipping boy of all the rest of, of society, we pray that you might affirm to them the fact they've been made in your image and they need Christ and, and you want to spend eternity with them through him. May their trust be in him today. In Jesus' name, amen.